Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. We've been gone for quite a while due to the coronavirus pandemic. We return now, however, to give you this special series. With speaks from our co-hosted symposium, Scaling Omics Approaches to Population Size. This is Torben Hansen from Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Basic Metabolic Research. On the topic, Genetics of Metabolism in a Population Isolate, Lessons from Greenland. So uh, thank you very much and very happy to be here today. And it's nice to, to see some faces when you are talking. And it's also nice to see that you are awake right now. So hopefully you will stay awake during my talk. So I will start with this slide. This illustrates what, what factors are important for expression of phenotypes and variation of phenotypes in the population. So you can see all these famous faces here. And these faces... They are due to variation in the genome interacting with environmental factors. The environmental factors could be from preconception, during fetal life, during childhood, throughout the adulthood. And these environmental factors then interact with the variation in the genome. There's common variation and rare variation. And the, the more rare variation it is, it's more, the more difficult it is to pick up what is the impact of, of this variant. So we would like to have genetic variations, which is more frequent and with a large effect size. So where can we find that to understand biology? So there we could consider to go to population isolates. We, that will empower, as I will show to you, the identification of rare variants which has gone to higher frequency and it will also facilitate identification of variants with large effect size. If you look at a population isolate, often it will have gone through what we call bottlenecks, that you have a population, it nearly dies out and then it expands again, nearly die out and then expand. So that will make the genome less complicated. Then you, we will have what we call linkage disequilibrium, which tends to be extended. When it nearly died out, then the remaining chunks of the genome, they are larger, and that is called extended linkage disequilibrium. Often we will have a more homogeneous environment, and in some cases you will have a better knowledge of population history. So this will allow us to get some tools to get a better insight into gene the impact of genes and also the impact of gene environment factors. So this is migration, uh, human, a map of human migrations, and you can see that the Inuits, they migrated out of Siberia more than 20,000 years ago. The first migration from uh, Siberia, when they went to Alaska, they went south into the sun, but there was a second migration which stayed in Alaska and migrated over Canada up to here, and then um, more than 1,000 years ago, they went to Greenland and then they populated Greenland to the southern tip and over to here. So they have stayed for more than 20,000 years in the Arctic. And during this uh, stay, 
there has been these bottlenecks. They are also adapted to a very harsh environment. It's cold, and they have a diet where there were nearly no carbohydrates, only fat and protein from mammals and fish. So very specific environment. I wouldn't go in very deep into this, but this is an example of selection scan. So we have scanned during the genome other regions in the genome which are uh, positive selected for in the Inuit population. And there are, you can see, there's these fatty acid desaturases. Uh, that has probably something with the diet to do. And then there's another signal over here, TPX15 and WAS2 locus, and that locus has probably something to do with fat biology. But I wouldn't touch more upon that. But there's clear selection signals from when you look into the uh, Inuit genome. But there's also something we call drift, the random fluctuation of how frequent variation is in the genome. If you look at the panel to the left, there we have simulated two populations. One population in the orange, which is large, found out 10,000 individuals, and in the green, it's smaller, it was only 750 individuals. And then we have simulated 500 generation, that's on the x-axis. And you can see, if you, if you stick to the orange, that, that, that with generations, there will be some fluctuation, but they are not really increasing in frequency, up to 10% maybe, but, and a lot will still be there, they do, do not disappear. If you take the green, on the contrary, a lot of the green, they disappear, and some, just by chance, start increasing in frequency, and in one of the cases, it even fixed on the other allele. So we, you know, we have two alleles, so it fixed on the other allele. So there will be, just by what we call drift, a higher frequency of some variants. And if, and if you have a higher frequency of variants, then you will have more homozygous individuals. And this is illustrated to the right, that this is African individuals, and then you have Europeans, and the population with the highest frequency of homozygocytes in the genome, that is the Greenlanders. And this is something we take advantage of. This is just a slide to show that Inuit probably is maybe the most isolated population, their genome, the most isolated genome uh, in any population, so they are very different from all other populations, and even within Greenland there is big variation. So the study I will show you, uh, to, uh, the studies I will show you today, that is studies we have done in the, in the Inuit population. So Greenland is the largest island in the world, 3,000 kilometers from north to south, 1,000 from uh, west to east, to east, and it's populated by only 57,000 individuals. And it's scattered around from north uh, west down to the tip to the east here. And the present population, as I said, they have lived there for, for 1,000 years. Uh, and now in the population also, there is a great degree of admixture from Danish population. We have looked into where the admixture comes from. Most of the admixture comes from Danes. The population has also a very interesting phenotype. So they are very obese down here. This is different population on the y-axis. And you can see to the left, both females, and to the right, males. 
that they are very, they're one of the more obese population. But it's a special kind of obesity. So it's a kind of obesity where they have, they are very truncal, but they have more subcutaneous fat, as illustrated here to the left, compared to more intra-abdominal fat compared to the right. And if you compare an Inuit population, for example, to a Danish population, and adjust for BMI or adjust for waist circumference, an Inuit is much healthier on average. They have lower glucose level, they have much better lipid profile, they have lower insulin and lower blood pressure, etc. So despite that they are truncal obese and they on average are more obese, the per degree of obesity, they are more healthy. So this makes us to, to examine this uh, population and we have been responsible for the, for the genetic part. And this has been a huge collaboration. So these are the collection sites in Greenland. Uh, in this study, Inuit Health and Transition, we have started 3,100. So that is between 5 and 10% of the population. Now we study nearly 6,000, so more than 10% of the entire population. This was 2,000 was visited by public transport, and you can also see some sites could only be examined by visiting by boat. They have been extensively phenotyped. I will come back to that. And for the first study, we used a so-called metabochip where we only could study 200,000 genetic variants. So what could we do with, with these uh, variants? We could calculate the degree of admixture, so how much Danish genome was there and how much Inuit genome. So this shows the different sites. And the red shows uh, the uh, up here, that's the Danish population. And you can also see that there are some isolated areas, Tazilak and Karnak, where there is nearly no admixture. And then, for example, in Nuuk, there is much more admixture. And 25% of the population is admixed. So we have to take, in our analysis, we have to take into account that there is admixture. They are also living in villages, so they are very related. But with the genetic information, we can also take into account that they are admixed. So one of the first studies we did was to, we had done an oral glucose tolerance test to see how they could cope with glucose. And there we found a signal during a so-called GYS or metabovas, because we only use this metabochip. To the left, you have so-called QQ plot. And when you're doing these many, many tests, you will have some expected uh, um, uh, significance levels and some observed. And you can see we have some which are much more significant than expected. And if you plot it in a so-called Manhattan plot where you have the chromosome down here on the x-axis, the, the p-value on the y-axis, you can see we have a signal here which is very, very strong, 10 to the minus 17th for a relatively small sample size. So this is a SNP uh, very close to the gene called CPC14. So uh, this SNP we could see in the Inuit ancestry had a high frequency of 27%, but it's also present in Europeans. So we would like to replicate, and what we could see was that in another Inuit sample we could replicate this, sample, this signal, 10 to the minus 6, but when we examined 45,000 Europeans, there was absolutely no signal. So why is that? So we speculated that this is one SNP which is inherited 
at the Inuit uh, ancestral uh, genome, and there will be another causal Inuit-specific variant at the same chunk of DNA. Can you follow that? So what we, what we have to do was to look at this region, find the Inuit-specific variant, which then could explain this signal. And we identify, we sequenced, and we identify a loss of function variant in the long isoform of TPC14, which is not present in the European genome, which explains this signal, and which is inherited often together with this other. So now we have the causal explanation for why they cannot cope with this glucose. And this is just to show you that the TPC14 isoform is only expressed in skeletal muscle, not in liver and pancreatic islets and adipose tissue. So it's a stop mutation. So this is a variant which causes um, a knockout of TPC14 only in the muscle. And when we examined the individuals, we could see that there's an increase in diabetes risk of, of more than 10. So it's a huge effect size. And those between 40 and 60, 60% have diabetes, and above 60, 80% have type 2 diabetes. And this explains 15% of all diabetes in Greenland. And it is not present outside in, in Denmark. We have examined the Canadian Inuit and the Alaskan Inuit. That's also present. So it explains a form of diabetes in the Arctic population, which is not present in any other population. And this is just to show you that it's very huge effect sizes. They have slightly decreased fasting plasma glucose, very elevated two-hour plasma glucose, nearly four millimolar. That's huge. They have very highly elevated insulin and C-peptide levels after a glucose, level, uh, glucose load. They are extremely postprandial insulin resistant. So when they get something to eat, they are very insulin resistant because glucose cannot go into their muscle. But despite that they're insulin resistant, they doesn't seem to have other components of the metabolic syndrome. What is going on? This is a cartoon with the insulin receptor. Insulin binds here. Then you will have signaling throughout the muscle cell. And normally, when you are at the fasting state, the GLUT4 uh, particles will be uh, inside the cell. And when you uh, stimulate insulin, then you will have GLUT4 go into the cell surface and you will take up glucose. But if you are lacking TPC1 D4, you will have constitutively recycling of GLUT4 and also a down regulation of the expression. So that explains why they have slightly decreased fasting and severely increased postprandial uh, glucose levels. So then we could also ask the question, is it drift, is it random, or could it maybe be selection? And when we examine this, there's a weak sign that this is positive selection. And then we can speculate why. Uh, it might be that in the more old days, and that is only maybe 50 years ago, there was nearly no carbohydrates in their diet. So it would be beneficial, so the glucose they had, that it has a prolonged uh, glucose load because glucose is very important for the brain. But nowadays where you have tons of uh, carbohydrates in your diet and they eat the same as we do now, then it's a disadvantage because now you will have hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia after in every meal. 
And we cannot give them insulin. They produce tons of insulin. So we need to insulin sensitize or, or sensitize them in some way. And we have done a study here where we have looked at exercise. And those who exercise a lot, that's on the x-axis, they can actually, when we give them a glucose load, they can clear their glucose. So we will recommend the same as we will do for everybody else. Healthy lifestyle, lots of exercise. But here it has a huge effect. So this is an example of a gene-environmental interaction. One of the reasons we found this was that we applied the so-called recessive model. So the effect is only visible when you see that both alleles are inherited or uh, are present at the same time. So we applied a recessive model to see could we find other diabetes loci in the Inuit genome. And yes, we could. We have identified two other genes, more uh, found by the fasting glucose. And there you can see if you have this variant, you have a two and a half time increased risk. If you have this other variant near the large gene, you have a three time increased risk. And I go back, you can also see that this is another example, is nearly not present in European population with a very high frequency in the Inuit population. So now we can explain nearly 20% of type 2 diabetes in the Inuit population, which is not present at all in European populations. Then we could ask, are there also rare variants as we see in Europeans? And we have screened for some of the known monogenic variants. And this is just two examples. There are also rare variants in uh, disease-causing variants in the Inuit population. This is a variant in HNF1-beta where they have diabetes and kidney disease. This is another example of one family in Greenland. We have examined 450 whole genomes from Greenland, and these variants are not present there. So these are really rare. So this is another family having so-called MODI2 or glucokinase diabetes with a mild form of diabetes. So if we use whole genome sequencing, we can identify both the rare and we can also identify the population-specific variants. So when you're treating diabetic patients, it's also very important to, to treat their lipids because diabetic patients, they are at risk of having so-called macrovascular disease, uh, heart attack or uh, stroke. So we also, in the Inuit population, screened for uh, genetic uh, factors controlling the LDL cholesterol. And again, with a rather limited sample size, this is another Manhattan plot. We have a huge signal. And this signal uh, maps directly to the LDL receptor. And it turns out that it was a known variant. It was a known functional variant. But you can see this variant has only been identified in one person out of 56,000 Europeans. And here we have an Inuit frequency of 23%. And the effect size is huge. You can see here, these are the wild type. These are one allele. These are two alleles. This is LDL cholesterol. So those who have two alleles, more than 4% of the population, they have an LDL cholesterol level above 5. In Denmark, normally you would put families to a familial hypercholesterolemia, clinic to be to do aggressive treatment so here we um, we have it at the population scale and it's a much much larger effect size compared to other populations 
This is what has been found in Europeans. And you can see the effect size here from this Greenlandic variant. So we need to take into account that the population-specific variants with huge effects. This could be translated directly into precision medicine in Inuit. You can also see the carriers. They have increased risk of ischemic heart disease, peripheral artery disease, and coronary operations. So time is running, but I have two interesting examples more I will show you. Now we can, we can study also loss of function mutations in, in the Greenlandic uh, genome. We have sequenced whole, sequ whole genome sequence 450 and identify a lot of, of loss of function. And this will be the human knockouts. Do they have a phenotype? Here we started out with the first study. We identified 46 loss of function studies, uh, mutations, and then we looked in the uh, GWAS database, are there any other signals uh, known from Europeans and other populations in this region? And we identify a variant in the ADCY3 gene. And this was associated with a huge increase in body mass index, 7 BMI units. It was also slightly increased with, uh, with type 2 diabetes. And you can see carriers, <clears throat> homozygous carriers on average, have 17 centimeters more on their waist. They have higher fat percentage, higher fasting glucose, and they are insulin resistant. We looked at the, also in the big databases, could the heterozygous uh, carriers also be maybe at risk of diabetes? And we found some indication. This was a splice mutation, so we took RNA and sequenced uh, peripheral blood, extracted RNA and sequenced it, and we could demonstrate that it, in fact, is a loss of function mutation. This is just showing that <clears throat> the, the canonical uh, transcript is nearly not expressed. And this is also in line with observation in mice where you knock this gene out. They will also become very obese, uh, hyperphagic, less physical active, active, and leptin resistant. So, so we have good evidence that we have found a new obesity gene, uh, but the exact mechanism we don't know yet. So last quick example. This is, this is how we can use also this information to get healthy insights. So, so we looked into a uh, mutation in the uh, uh, congenital sucrose isomaltase gene. So normally, if you eat uh, sucrose, it, it's a disaccharide. It will be cut by the sucrase, sucrase, and it will be taken up in the upper intestine. But if you cannot digest it, then the disaccharides will go to the colon, and there it will be fermented, and you will have... Um, um, uh, generation, for example, of small-chain fatty acids and so on. And it is known that the newborns, when they, when they are breastfed, they go from breastfed to other uh, feeding, then they, um, uh, then they have these severe symptoms from their stomach. So we, ex we examined those, not the newborns, but the adults, uh, more than 5,000, and it turns out that they are very healthy. When they're adult, they have no symptoms from the stomach. They have two BMI units, lower BMI. They have less uh, uh, adipose uh, fat percent. They have a much healthier lipid profile. 
nearly 0.3 lower millimolar triglyceride, lower remnant cholesterol. Um, it's not explained by the diet. It's probably explained by uh, fermentation in the colon. We can measure very high acetate level. So this is our working hypothesis. We put some mice where we have knocked out the SI on a diet where they can use Western diet or sucrose or chow, and they take in the same energy whether they are knockout or not. The, the, the knockouts would not like to eat sugar, but they like the cake. And we find exactly the same. They have lower body weight and lower fat percentage. So here, if we can block this gene, then we will have an example of a positive outcome on metabolic health. So in population isolates, you will have variants which are common in the population with large effect sizes. And this could be used in precision medicine. This lady says, uh, could I get the right treatment from the beginning? And this is my acknowledged slide. Many, many collaborators on this study and a nice picture from Greenland. <laughs>